I'd like to read our three foundational scriptures and then begin to move into that which God has given unto us for tonight. Our overriding theme has been discerning the times and we do honor the Lord Jesus Christ for the times that he has us in, but we are discerning the times that we are in so that we might know how we ought to behave and how we ought to act and we ought to be. In Mark's gospel chapter 16 and verse 15, it says, and he said to them, go, go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved and he who does not believe shall be condemned. And these signs shall follow those who do believe in my name. They shall cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. Uh, they shall take up serpents. And if they have, if they drink anything deadly, it will not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. We see here in the gospel of Mark where Mark has exhorted us uh, to go into all the world. And that word world is the word cosmos, the orderly arrangements of things. Uh, every place that man uh, creates a system invaded. And we looked Sunday morning at the seven systems that man creates, A through G. They are arts and entertainment, business, congregations, direct media, education, family systems, and governmental systems. He said every place man creates a system, cosmos invaded. And then declare the gospel there. How do we do that? By our lifestyle and by our language. In one sense, we are light. We show forth his character. And uh, in the other sense, we use our language. When people ask us why we are living the way that we live, we also share with them our testimony. And we should be ready to give an account of the hope that's within us at any time. We should be ready to do that. Matthew chapter 16 now in verse number one through three. Matthew 16, one through three. We looked at Mark 16, 15. It says, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked him that he would show them uh, a sign from heaven. And he answered and he said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Jesus here is having a leadership meeting. The leaders in this meeting are Pharisees, religious leaders, Sadducees, religious leaders, and Jesus, my model for leadership. And they're asking him to give them him a sign. They are tempting him because they want him to act outside of the will of God. Because Jesus only did what he saw his father do when his father said to do it. And yet Jesus tells them, how is it that you're looking for a sign? He said, because you know that red sky in the morning, it's going to be a foul day. You know, a red sky in the night, it's going to be a foul morning, a good day. He said, how is it that you can read the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time before the days of cell phones and uh, digital radios? I was a Boy Scout and during my Boy Scout days, we used to go camping. In fact, our church would drop us off at the scout camp with the church van 
on Friday night and after they took all the saints home would come back and pick us up on Sunday afternoon in the woods all by ourselves with our scout masters and uh, fellow scout members uh, in the woods and the way that we told the weather because after a while your batteries in your transistor radio would die. I know I missed some people and some of y'all missed that era, but that's what we had. Uh, your batteries would die and you were stuck. So what you would do is wake up early in the morning and we had this little rhyme. Red sky <coughs> in the morning, sailor's warning. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. And you could just tell what the weather was going to be. This was before Doppler. You could tell what the weather is going to be by looking at the sky. It was true in Jesus's day also. He said, how is it that you can look at the sky and tell the weather? But you don't know the signs of the time. Luke's gospel now, chapter 12. These are our cornerstone scriptures. Uh, Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> Again, Jesus is having an encounter and he had some long uh, exchanges and dialogues with leaders. And they again are pressing him. And in Luke 12, let's look at verse 56. He says, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it that you do not discern this time, this time? And Jesus was now appearing as Messiah. Daniel had prophesied he was coming. Isaiah had prophesied he was coming. Micah had prophesied he was coming. Amos had prophesied he was coming. All the prophets that spoke. Moses in the book of Genesis, when he writes the original account, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, it had been prophesied that one would come. And now Jesus appears in the fullness of time. It's been calculated by Daniel's calendar. And yet Jesus says, how is it that you don't know this time? I believe that the world is asking some critical questions right now that we are sent into the world is asking in our communities, asking what in the world's going on when we see terrorist activity, when we see economies falling and rising, when we see even countries like Greece that seem to go in the chaos and anarchy because their economy is now going through an upheaval. When we have a world that doesn't seem what to do, know what to do. When you have uh, countries that are afraid like China, when you have uh, countries that are afraid like Russia, they're afraid from America bombing them over the top or, not, or, or NATO from the east or, or from their west. And they're afraid of China and Korea from their west and they're afraid of Islamic imperialism and jihad from from the south. You have nations that are huge that in 70 years ago were the world power map and now they're afraid. And on our watch, the world power map has changed. It has changed on our watch. And now there are nations that are dying and nations that are struggling to be born. There are new voices on the global scale. And as I go into the world, into the nations I have a chance to minister in, people are not letting us just come in and tell them what to do. They say, you better recognize the times. The word discern, as we have defined it over our time together, it means the ability to sift and assort and to know what's in operation to discern. The discern also means discernment means to reveal what is acting behind the scenes. And the discern means to detect with something other than the eyes. You and I, Marianne Brown taught me years ago that one of the greatest weapons against end time deception that the church will need will be mature discernment. And I believe it's critical for us to hear this, 
That mature discernment means that you and I are cannot just look with the eyes and hear with the natural ears. We're going to have to sense and sort and detect and ask God to reveal what's really going on behind the scenes. The word to discern means to detect with something other than the eyes. And the word discern also means to recognize and to understand the difference. We need to know what is God and what is an angel in operation. What is a demon and what is uh, uh, Satan in operation? What is humanity and what's in operation just because we live in a corrupt world? You know, in our kingdom, there's a lot of debates now in seminaries and in even places that are training our young ministers that are emerging now, whether there is a devil, whether the Genesis account was real. There's real debate on whether a historical Jesus, as we understand him and have understood him for 2000 years, have really existed. These are great debates that are going on. And our ability to defend our faith, apologetics is critical during this time so that we can pass on the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We have to argue and reason with people. We have moved from an A2 world, an Acts 2 world that was biblically and scripturally centered to now an A17 world, a Mars Hill world where there's ration and there's reasoning. And it's really a postmodern world that is full of philosophy where people can now create their own reality. Creating a reality about who they are and their sexual identity, self-identification, sexual re-identification surgery. People can now, in the world that we're in, create their own reality and there needs to be someone that stands firm because they have discerned the times. Because as we stand firm, we can deliver to our seed and to our seed seeds the word that has been delivered unto you. Let me give you Five things tonight that I believe that we further need to discern as we discern the times. As we discern the times today, one of the things as we go into this world that Jesus has called us into, we need to discern the impact of jihad globally. And that is genocide globally. Global genocide. Now, now what is genocide? I went to South Africa in 1988 when apartheid was still going on. During the time of apartheid, there were people that were in Africa that were brutally uh, sectioned off in various sections. Uh, when I went to Africa, I went to Zimbabwe, and there I, uh, I met men and women who had uh, went through the civil war between Rhodesia and uh, between, it, between this time of independence in Zimbabwe. It was, it was a long war. But although the African continent, as the colonial powers were forced out or moved out, and the African continent began to then experience its first taste of liberation free of European and other influence, I began to see that there were long-standing feuds between people, tribal feuds. Those feuds have also not only manifested in, uh, in southern Africa, but also I saw it in Rwanda. It's happened in the Congo. It's happened in Sudan, Somalia. It's happened in Yemen also now. Genocide is now going on with Islamic imperialists in Syria. And, G and genocide is the systematic removal of any entity from society. Genocide. Whenever a society finds a people and they mark them as unnecessary, then they become intolerant of those people. And then they begin to systematically remove those people 
from society. The German Jews, the Germans determined that the Jews were unnecessary. They then became intolerant. They began then to systematically remove them from their society. That systematic removal of any entity from society is called genocide. You and I need to understand that genocide produces anger and revenge. When someone has had genocide committed against them, they will want to retaliate with anger and revenge. And yet on the other side, in our kingdom, we talk about forgiveness and reconciliation. So when apartheid was removed from South Africa and I came back a few years later, I'll go back there again in January. I was part of some beginning conversations that then turned into national and political and governmental conversations called reconciliation trials. Some of them were reconciliation councils to reconcile people that had been alienated from them. And it was only the message of Christ that was one of the binding forces. The Anglican priest, Bishop Tutu, was a part of those reconciliation talks that could help bring people back together. And the word tells us in 2 Corinthians that we're new creations in Christ Jesus. And we've been given not a ministry of separation, but a ministry of reconciliation. But what happens is when there's global genocide, it produces a refugee problem because people run from genocide. And now I know what America's policy is shaping up to be concerning refugees. But my question to the Lord in discerning the times is what should be the Christian stand? Let's look at Matthew chapter two and verse number 12. And let's look at a family that were refugees for a season. Matthew two, verse number 12, Matthew two, 12. And in Matthew two, 12, we find this little account. It says, then being this, uh, divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod. These are the wise men. They departed. For their own country another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to kill or to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, and one of the prophets had prophesied out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this was a time where Mary and Joseph had birthed Christ, Jesus. Jesus was birthed and some wise men see a star in the east. They've been reading and they come and they want to find the Christ. Now they stop at Herod. They say, he says, who do you seek? And they say, well, we seek he who was born the king of the Jews. And Herod is insecure. He's killed many people to secure his throne. And he says, a king is born. He says, tell me where the king is. And they said, we're looking for him. He says, you go find him. And they said, we want to worship him. He said, well, go find him and then come back and tell me where he is so that I might worship. The text that we read is when they now discover the child 
And now they're getting ready to go back to Herod. And then they get divinely warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. The wise man leave another way. The other gospels record that Herod then begins to commit genocide against all of the Jewish children systematically removing him, thinking that he'll get Jesus. But at the same time, an angel appears to Joseph and he says, take the child and his mom and go to Egypt. They were refugees running from genocide. And where do they run? An African nation. Would you be surprised to know that Africa rocked the Christ child way before Europe ever got him? I said that one time in a meeting with some Caucasian pastors and they told me Egypt isn't in Africa. It's in the Middle East. I said, you are ignorant. Look at a map. (laughs) Yes, Africa had the Christ child way before Europe ever got him. And man, Africa rocked him. I've been to Egypt, Cairo, and in the Cairo Museum, there are maps of the Holy Family and their pilgrimage all through Egypt, every place they stopped until they made their pilgrimage back up to Jerusalem and eventually to Nazareth. I have one of the maps. I brought it home on parchment paper. I didn't steal it from the Cairo Museum. (laughs) And so not only were they there, But the Egyptians know where they were, and the Coptic church honors that. Wonder if Egypt would have closed their borders and said, oh, no, we had those Hebrews here some time ago. And when those Hebrews were here, when they left, they took all of our gold, they took all of our silver, They took off our cloth. And then when we went to go get our stuff back, they drowned our army and our Pharaoh. We are building a wall. We're not letting them in. I have to ask God when I read stuff like this, God, I know what public policy is saying, but what should be my Christian response? And help me to discern the times. So I might know what my Christian response might be to people that are running. I have 350 families that are traditional Islamic people living next door to my church in a governmental project. It used to be governmental. Now the veterans of uh, uh, Volunteers of America owns it and Somali families live there. We have now engaged them, engaged them with, first of all, uh, uh, sewing projects. Our women start meeting with their women. Their women are traditional Islam. They do not talk to males. So their women talk to our women. So they start teaching them how to sew. Then we start doing dietary programs. Then in our church, we started having English as a second language programs in our church. So if you would have come into our church in the morning time, you would have found Somali women over here and Somali men over here. You thought you would add a mosque. You weren't you at Raymond Christian Center. But we were teaching with a collaboration with the Ohio State University English as a second language. Our thought is that I baptized my first two Muslim men last year. They were young men because now they're starting in their their second generation is interacting with American kids. They are fluent in English. And one of the young men, I said, are you excited about going back to a Somali one day? And he said, Somali, I'm an American. I said, you are Somali. <laughs> He said, no, I'm an American. And we really believe that because of our engagement, it may be the second generation 
that may be one to the Lord Jesus Christ because of their Americanization and because of their interaction with them. I have a Quran on my iPad. I said that last night because I interact with the community so much and they want to talk about Esau. They want to talk about Moses. They want to talk about Abraham. But most of us don't read any other book but the Bible. So how can we engage those who we are supposed to reach? And friends, they came to our country, not as terrorists, though some of them have been engaged, but it's a very few minority in terrorist activity and have been arrested. But many of them came fleeing for their lives. They bearing their bodies the scars of jihad, of not of jihad. That there was holy war over there, but it was also political ideology and tribal more over there. Tribal. But it was genocide. Wipe out a whole group of people because they belong to a different tribe. What should be our Christian response? There's 1.5 million uh, refugees that are trying to get into Europe right now. It seems like one of the things that I've learned is that we don't learn. <laughs> one of the things I've learned from history is we don't learn from history. See, in 1939, there are a bunch of Jews that ran from Europe. They got on a ship called the SS St. Louis. They went to England. England said, we don't want you here. Sail all the way across the United States, stayed off the coast of Cuba. Cuba said, we can take as many as we can. And after they took their quota, they said, we can't take anymore. They came off the coast of the United States and the United States blocked those European Jews from coming in. Finally, Europe said, we'll take some. Holland took about 181. Uh, France took about 224. Belgium, Britain took about 228. Belgium took about 214. And the rest of them were returned to West Germany. And many of them died in what we call the Holocaust. Because somebody didn't know how to respond with compassion to genocide globally. In this world that we go into, there's a lot of anger. Because people have systematically removed people. And if I look at what Egypt did for Christ, I have to ask the Lord, what needs to be my response? I'm not telling you what to do. I'm asking you to inquire of the Lord. What should be my Christian response? The people that are running from their nation for their lives. Just to survive because somebody has marked them as unnecessary, intolerant, and now they are systematically removing those people. Refugee problems are not going to go away because we live in a corrupt world. And as I discern the time now, I would suggest that they're probably going to get greater and they're going to get greater and they're going to get greater. We have to determine as a church, we may not be able to do everything, but we can do something. Not only do we have to discern the, the, the impact of global genocide, but also you need to understand that as you impact, uh, discern the uh, impact of global genocide, genocide globally. Friends, one of the things we also have to recognize and discern in this time is under that particular point that there's been a loss of American privilege around the world. The world does not want American Christians or anybody else coming in, telling them what to do and how to run their countries. Now the world is saying, if you're going to come into our country, you need to come in as a partner, not as an imperialist. Don't come into our country and tell us how to run our country. Come in and ask us, how do you want us to run? The first thing that we ought to ask is, do you need help? Can I help? 
And then how can I help? And friends, I've discovered that as a Christian. I had a suburban church that wanted to do work in the inner city in our city. And one of the things that happened is they came in and they found a plot of land that they bought. It was a vacant house that no taxes had been bought on. It was in foreclosure. They bought it from the county, tore down the house, and they said, we know what this neighborhood needs. We know that this neighborhood needs a playground. They came in, they cleared off the lot, put in state-of-the-art playground equipment, had a big dedication there, and everybody came out and dedicated the playground equipment. Kids played on it for about two weeks, and when they came back a year later, it was all overgrown playground equipment there. Because the neighborhood didn't need a playground. They needed after school care programs. Well-meaning people. But they never came in and felt the need of the community and asked the community, what do you need? The people would have told them, can we convert that house to a place that we can do reading buddies? Can we convert this house to a place that is Internet ready so that our kids, where we don't have Wi-Fi at our house, can come and do their homework? And friends, you and I, we sometimes have assumed that because we're Americans, we know everything. And don't think that that does not affect our worldview as American Christians. It does. So you and I also have to discern not only global genocide and how we can participate, but we also secondly have to discern the major moves of God and the minor moves of God during this time. And every time God moves... There is both a major emphasis and a minor emphasis. Let me give you this definition. A major emphasis is when God is saying, this is what I ultimately want done. A minor emphasis is when God may be reviewing something that he has done before, but now he's bringing it back to, uh, to the forefront. Look at me in Psalm 46, verse number four. In Psalm 46 and verse number four. Psalms bring strength to us, and I love reading the Psalms, when I find myself having a day that we might call, in, uh, in, my, in my culture, we called it, I'm having the blues. And we used to have what we called Blue Monday, because you had to go back to work. And uh, sometimes we're down in the dumps, and the Psalms help to lift us up out of that dumps, out of the horrible pit. Psalm 46 says this, it says in verse 4, it says, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God. There's a river, the streams may glad the city of our God. The holy place of the tabernacle, the most high. Now hear me well. There's a river that God starts in the community. For out of our belly shall flow rivers of living water. And out of that river of living water, there are streams that flow into the river of God. The river of God is his major emphasis. And then the streams are his minor emphasis. In our city, there was a great emphasis over the last few years on signs and wonders and signs and wonders. And we have many classes in our churches and uh, many of the churches collaborate. And there was a big flow of signs and wonders study, teaching saints of God how to lay hands on the sick so that they could recover. We saw some incredible things. But my question to the Lord as he's doing, I said, God, is this a major emphasis of yours or is this a minor? He said, that's the minor emphasis. That's the he said, that's the outworking of my a major emphasis, Mark 16, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes shall be saved. He that believes not shall be damned. He said, seeing the salvation of men is my major emphasis, evangelism, soul winning. And he said, and these signs shall follow those who believe. 
You see, many times you and I want signs and wonders, but we want it on our terms in the church. And yet when I look at the ministry of Jesus, as he went, he encountered people in the community and that's where signs and wonders were done. And what would happen in our communities if we would just show up and stretch out our hand for healing in different kinds of settings? I believe that we will have more incredible miracles done sometime on accident than we see on purpose in a church service, if you will. See, most of us say, listen, God, I got one slot for you. 11 o'clock till one on Sunday morning. I want you to I want you to give me the voice of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher. I want to see tongues, interpretation of tongues, uh, prophecy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning of spirits, uh, special faith and miracles. I want you to fix my marriage, fix my family, fix my manhood, fix my womanhood. I want you to fix my money because my money is funny. I want you to all that. And God, you got two hours to do it. (laughs) 11 to one Sunday morning. And yet Jesus didn't slot God because God didn't come to take a part of your life. He came that you might have life. And have it more abundantly. And friends, many of us have a church life and a private life. And God doesn't want you to have segregated living anymore. Segregated living is when you have compartmentalized life. He wants you to have an integrated life because he didn't come for you to have a marketplace life and a church life. He didn't come for you to have family life and a church life. He came that you might have life. How about some integrated living that no matter where I am, there I am. And everything that's within me. One day a brother asked me, what do you bring to the kingdom? I said, all that is within me. I'm fully engaged. All that is within me. I am fully engaged. No matter where I am, there I am. And friends, the major emphasis of God, everything that we do in the kingdom of God should wind up in evangelism, bringing people into the kingdom of God, and then discipleship after they come. And if we can bring them, win them, and then develop them to win them, then we can change our community. And friends, you and I need to understand the major and the minor moves of God. I heard Kenneth Hagin say it. uh, No, Lester Summerall. They asked him, Dr. Summerall, how have you stayed relevant through multiple decades and generation? He said, he says, I major on the majors and minor on the minors. He said, I just don't get off on every rabbit dream that comes. And I've seen all kind of waves of stuff come. And there'll be ways stuff. And they said, man, if you had to laugh and revival at your church, I said, man, it's been pretty serious. We ain't had much to laugh about lately. And they said, well, it's a move of God. I said, well, I think I'll let that move just keep on moving. <laughs> now, there was one Sunday where spontaneous laughter broke out in our church. And then it was gone. But I said, I'm not going to fight it if that's what God is doing amongst the people. But I said at that particular time, this happened. I remember one year, there was a big move of God on money. Money coming to me today. Money coming. And I remember God said, the major move of God in this church is going to be holiness unto the Lord. So I started preaching holiness unto the Lord. We sold more of those CDs on, on, on the radio and on television than any other series I'd ever preached. I probably could have sold more. If Joel Osteen would have been around, because Joel doesn't talk about holiness unto the Lord, I would have said, give God your highest. But I, he wasn't around then, because his word for holiness is giving God your highest. But it equates to the same thing. 
Give God your best. And friends, you and I need to find out what is God saying to us? Somebody else might be talking to them about money. But the UE might be talking to you about you. And what is a major and a minor move of God? Even in our worship, there are shifts and we need to determine what it is that God is saying to us. What's the divine emphasis? Every October of the year, I seek God for what do you want to say to our church in the coming year? And that brings me to our next point. What is the divine emphasis of God? Not only what are the major and minor moves of God, but what is the divine emphasis of God? Now, look at me in the Revelation chapter three. The Revelation is a fascinating book. It's John. Do you know that John was a was an apostle that lived longer than any of the other guys? Uh, some of our church historians have said he's the only one that died a natural death. And, and John is fascinating to me because he so disturbed his society, the Revelation 2, 7, or, or 3, 22. Turn to 3, 22. Uh, uh, John so disturbed his society that they didn't know what to do with him, so they put him out on an island and said, maybe he'll just go away. And you know what he does out on that little island? He gets in the spirit on the Lord's day and starts writing again. And listen, when he begins his letter, he writes, a word from the Lord to seven churches in Asia. And in 322, he says, he who hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Now, this isn't the first time he said this. He has said this in the Revelation 2.7. He has said it in the Revelation 2.11. He has said it in the Revelation 2.17. He has said it in the Revelation 2.29. He has said it in the Revelation 3.6. He has said it in the Revelation 3.13. And then at the end of this letter, he says to the church, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Listen, there is a divine emphasis of God, but these seven churches existed at the same time. Tony Cook has a marvelous series on the seven churches of Asia. They exist at the same time, but God doesn't say the same thing to every church. Are you hearing me? There's a different message for every church. But he said, but this is what God is saying to the churches. So there's many times a divine move of God that he's saying to the church, but then there's also a word that he's saying to the churches. Therefore, don't get involved in the comparison game. Because when you as a church start comparing yourself with the church that is five blocks down the street, you're going to lose that game. The comparison game, you'll never win. I don't play that game because I can never win it because I'm totally unique. We are fearfully and wonderfully made marvelous works of the Lord. For me to compare myself with Pastor John is just ridiculous. First of all, I'm more handsome than he is. <laughs> That's why he's taller than I am. He's an attorney, so I know he's smarter than I am. So I can't compare myself with him. I get a natural tan. He got to put on dark tanning lotion. If we start doing a comparison game, we'll never win that game. So also with congregations, you have to know what the divine emphasis of God is. What's he saying to our church? And if I'm in here, let's get in there and let's push 
together and stop comparison our, comparing ourselves with mosaic churches. Stop comparing ourselves with a remnant churches. All of these moves, these are moves of God, but that's what God told them to do. He didn't tell the church at Laodicea to do the same thing. He told the church at Sardis that he told the church at Philadelphia. He told them all simultaneously dwelling together. He said, there's a word of the Lord for your church. And if you're lean on your neighbor, say, if you're in here, get in. Yeah, you need to get in it. Okay. Don't hang out on the fringes. If you're in here, get in here. And we need some buy-in now so that we can all pull together in the same direction so that we can make some headway together. We need to hear what the divine emphasis is on church. So I asked the Lord for three words in October. I said, what do you want me to say to Raymond Christian Center? And I oversee a network of churches. What do you want me to say to the network of local churches? And then what do you want me to say to the kingdom of God? What I'm saying to Rhema is a lot different somewhat than what I'm saying to you this week. What I say to the networking in the kingdom is a little bit different than what I say at Rhema. But I need to know what is the divine emphasis of God and the divine emphasis of God. What is he saying? That helps me to shape my message. It helps me to shape my methodology. Listen, because you understand the divine method, uh, emphasis of God. Remember Moses, let's take Moses and Joshua as a case study. Moses and Joshua were two men. Moses' responsibility, bring them out of Egypt, bring them through the wilderness, take them to the land. Then God tells Moses, you're not going in the land. Joshua, your replacement, will take them in. They had two different kind of leadership styles. Do you know that Joshua, Moses was a man that did everything by himself. He went before Pharaoh, took Aaron, but he was the one that did everything. He's the one that raised the rod. He's the one that argued with God when God wanted to kill the people. And then he said, well, God, you can't do that because you made a covenant. And God said, okay, I won't kill him, but I'll walk him to death for 40 years, okay? <laughs> and I'll let their kids go in. So, 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 so after 40 years, the kids go in. Then he said, now, Joshua, you take him in. Now, when Joshua gets ready to go in, God tells Joshua in Joshua chapter three, he said, now, Joshua, here's going to be the way you're going to operate as a leader. You're going to develop a team. And Joshua chapter three says, first of all, I want you to take one leader out of all the 12 tribes. So you get called the leaders together. You're going to have a team that's going to be your leadership team. And then he said, and Joshua, you're going to also need the priest. He said, so you call the priest together with you. And he said, here's going to be your battle plan. Joshua, when you go in, you command the leaders and they're going to tell the people what's the divine emphasis and the divine emphasis. We want to take everybody and we're not leaving any grandchildren, any great grandchildren. We're bringing in everybody. We're bringing in Sarah. We're bringing in Rebecca. We're bringing in Rachel. We're bringing in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Man, we're bringing in Mookie, Ray Ray, and Boo Laquita, Shaniqua, and Lantisha. We're bringing them all in. Everybody's going into the land. Y'all got me. Y'all, y'all feeling me on that? Everybody's going in. We're bringing everybody across. He said, but this is going to be a team back for It's not going to just be me stretching out on my ride because they come to the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is overflowing. God brings them at the season when the, when the river is most treacherous. And God says, here's the plan. He said, I know what the previous leader, he stretched out his rod. 
and the sea split. He said, this time you're sending the priests, the worship leaders in, and they're going to step into the water. Okay, all you trumpeters, keyboard players, drummers, vocalists, all of y'all, y'all come on out here. Y'all going first. You the leader, you get paid to do this. We just part time. No, you going in first. He says, and what they're going to do, they're going to bear the Ark of the Covenant. It says, you tell them that when they step into the water, they are to stand firm, holding up the ark. So he says, Joshua, you as a leader, you're going to need the ark. Joshua, why the ark? Because inside the ark, there are three things. First of all is my law. So Joshua, you got to keep my law in front of the people. The law, there's a tablet in there with my law. Keep my standing in front of the people. Joshua, inside of that ark, there's also a pot of manna. That means I am your provision. So Joshua, you don't have to look for anybody else to provide for you. As I provided in the wilderness, so I will provide for you in the land. Joshua, inside of that ark, is a stick, a rod that budded. Joshua, even the old folks, are going to be, be able to be fruitful in their old age. So for some of you that are getting married in your old age, just be aware, you can be fruitful in your old age. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. Because <laughs> Aaron's rod's in the box. Hallelujah. He says, so remind them that I am their standard. Remind them that I am their provider. Remind them that I am the one that makes them fruitful and bountiful, even when everything looks dead. He said, when all the people cross over, the 12 leaders will come in. You stand firm. And when all the people go over, then when they go over, you go back. And he said, and I'll bring the waters back together. Joshua had a team effort to bring him across the Jordan. So there's two different leadership styles. And sometimes the divine emphasis of God when there's a leadership shift is that you bring in a leader that has a different kind of style. But the emphasis for both Moses and Joshua was the same. We want to bring you into that land flowing with milk and honey. We need to discern the impact of global genocide. We need to discern the major moves of God and the minor moves of God. We need to discern the divine emphasis of God to the church. Number four, we need to discern sound doctrine versus false doctrine these days. Oh, Lord, help us. Titus chapter one and verse number nine. Titus one and verse number nine. I think that it's important for us to understand in the last days that there are seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And one of the things that it is told here in Titus uh, chapter 1 and verse number, uh, as Titus is left in Crete on that isle, on the isle of Crete, he said he's left there that you should set in order the things that are lacking. In verse number 9, Titus 1, 9, he says, now listen, he's talking about a bishop, a leader in a church. He says, we need to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict by sound doctrine. Sound doctrine impacts Multiple generations, old and young, sound doctrine. We are living in a day where sound doctrine 
is not now being adhered to. We need to still preach that the Bible is the word of God. It's inherent. It is infallible. It's inerrant. It's been God-breathed. It's infallible. It's without error. The meticulous nature of the Masoretic order of scribes who wrote down the text has been amazing. Even when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in my lifetime, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Man, when they were found and they found out that they had scrolls out of those caves down in Qumran, that even outdated some of the scrolls that were used for the 1600 translation in English. They found out that there was no need to make any notable changes. So accurately was the word of God cared for that was translated into our authorized versions and subsequent versions. Friends, we need to preach that Jesus is the son of man and the son of God. I still believe that he is the son of God, God made flesh. We need to still preach that the Holy Spirit is God's gift to the church. God's gift to the world was Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But Jesus' gift to his church was the Holy Spirit. And why should I want to receive God's gift to the world and not receive Jesus' gift to the church? We still need to teach sound doctrine, the fellowship of the saints. Amen. Not only do I worship with you, but I want to connect with you and that we are one body in Christ. That's sound doctrine. We need to preach, you know, uh, uh, we need to preach about sin, salvation and man. That man is inherently lost without God. Salvation is that Christ came, lived a sinless life. He walked among us and showed himself with many infallible proofs. He went to Calvary and he died. He went into a grave as was prophesied, stayed there three days. He rose again. He's right now seated at the right hand of God. And, uh, and he's coming for a church without spot or rink or any such thing. We ought to preach his initial advent. We ought to preach his life, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement and his return. We ought to preach sound doctrine. We ought to preach the sacraments that you still need to be baptized in water, a burial of the old man and a resurrection of the new. I baptized one of our emerging adults last baptismal weekend. And when I, when I was praying for her in the prayer room beforehand, myself and one of the uh, ministers that's on staff, we were going to do the baptism. And, and, and she looked at me and she said, Pastor, I got a lot of stuff I want to see buried today. Could you hold me down a little bit longer? <laughs> I looked at her and I said, I'd be glad to. Because <laughs> we had read Romans chapter six that says, what know ye not that as many as you are baptized were baptized into his death. We are buried with Christ Jesus in baptism that we might rise and walk in newness of life. Listen, we need to still teach baptism. We need to still teach the sacrament and the saving grace uh, and that which is a sacred act of communion. I believe that I know the Lord in the breaking of bread and in the drinking of the cup, that I commune with the head, but I also commune with his body. And in the book of Acts, one of the things that they did was they were noted by the breaking of bread from house to house. They ate their meat with gladness and they continually temple in the temple in the breaking of bread. I believe that they were fellowshipping around natural meals, but I also believe that they were breaking bread together. We ought to teach that sound doctrine. We ought to teach that I still believe that I will see him. I believe in resurrection. I don't believe that death is the end. I don't believe in an ultimate, uh, that, 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 that death is the end. I believe that death uh, is nothing but a, uh, a cessation of life, but I also believe in resurrection. 
I believe that he's going to come and I'll be resurrected, man. I believe I teach that uh, we're going to see him. I believe we're going to see him. I believe there's going to be some upgrades that this mortal is going to put on immortality. That this corruption is going to put on the incorruption. His natural body is going to trade in a supernatural body. If I leave long enough, I know that Paul says if this outward tent perishes, my inner man is being renewed day by day. My ancestors in an old Negro spiritual used to say there's a leak in this old building and my soul has got to move. And there's a day sometime when this soul's got to move out of here. But that ain't the end. You ought to teach sound doctrine. And I really believe that when we teach sound doctrine, it gives people hope. Sound doctrine doesn't move. And I really believe that we ought to teach sound doctrine. I believe, finally, we need to discern as we are preaching. And for those of us who are orators, teachers, and small group leaders, we ought to discern the difference between, fifth one, biblical theology and Western-centered theology. My final point, do not dismiss it because we've talked about global genocide. We've also looked at major minor moves of God and the divine emphasis of God to the churches and discerning between true and false doctrine, sound doctrine and false doctrine. But listen, there's biblical theology and there's Western theology. Two scriptures I want to close with today. One is Genesis chapter 12. And this is when God in 2000 B.C. calls a man named Abraham. And I've been wrestling with this. Pastor John and I were talking some about about our covenantal theology on our way over here. And God calls a man named Abraham. He calls him from Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram is in the Chaldean nation. He's a man that's worshiping idols. And all of a sudden, God stops him and says, listen, Abraham, now the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, get out of the country. From your family, from your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. And watch this. Don't forget this last clause. It may be the final part of Abraham's blessing that we tend to forget in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, Abraham was given a far-reaching prophecy. That sevenfold prophecy, the last clause, Abraham and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It was far-reaching for all the families of the earth versus just a familiar few only. I really believe that biblical theology has to be far-reaching. It has to reach out to the nations. It has to reach out to different groups. When I saw the group that was ministering here tonight, uh, I, I said, uh, Teresa leaned over. She, she said, are they all from the same African nation? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to find them at the end of the service to find out. What nations were represented up here? Liberia. Liberia. Nigeria. Ghana. Ghana. Okay, those three. Okay, that is good because you see, in a church like this, this is one of the most multicultural churches I go to anywhere. And what that means to me is that becomes important because biblical theology ought to be far reaching no matter who's standing up here at the book board. It ought, it ought to be in, it ought to be far reaching. We ought to extend our reach so that folk in the region might know that there's a place for folks from Liberia and from Nigeria and from Ghana. And they might be uh, from 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 places like Vermont and Rhode Island and even places like Providence. <laughs> Hallelujah. 
I pray for Fopper then said, sorry, sorry, coming up here. Because every time I read in the newspaper, somebody's mayor's going to jail or something. I said, <laughs> I said, what have I got involved in? <laughs> I do, I pray. I pray whenever I hear there's an election up here. I said, oh God, help him, help him, Jesus. <laughs> and I live way over in the Midwest. But there, there ought to be room in the church for all kinds of people. Listen, Matthew 28, 19, my final scripture, you see, biblical center theology. Jesus at the end of his ministry, I think he picks up on the Abrahamic covenant because uh, I think Matthew talks off and he says, you know, this Jesus, he's the son of David and he's also the son of Abraham, which means he has that Abrahamic thing on him. And you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Matthew 28, 19, as I close and Pastor Ray, you can come. It says, go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I really believe that God wants a church that reaches out to everybody. Church that when people come, you say, welcome to Faith Christian Center. But it may be also to add this clause. I'm going to add it to ours. Not only welcome to Rhema Christian Center, but tell folks, welcome home. There's space for you here. I watched a movie a few years ago, and it was rerun this past week called Antoine Fisher, Finding Antoine Fisher. Story about a young man that was abandoned by family, raised in foster homes, and somehow maintained his sanity but had an anger problem inside of him and went through a journey through the Navy. Denzel Washington was in a movie that became his counselor and he's trying to find himself and shake off all the hurt and pain. Finally, he goes on a journey to find his family and finds his family and meets his birth mother. And, uh, and then the man says, well, what do you want to do? And he says, I met her and I know who she is, but if I never see her again, I think I'll be all right. The new family, while he's been gone on the search to meet his birth mother, gathers all the relatives into the house. And the last scene is priceless. Because when he comes in the house, the boy says, man, I'm your cousin. I'm your uncle, boy. You look just like your daddy. And then a door opens up and the patriarch of the family is there. An old woman sitting at a table. She touches the table. He comes in and he's been dreaming about pancakes and fried chicken and all kind of stuff all of his life. Never knew why. Found out that's what his family eats. Sometimes there's something in us based on where we came from. <laughs> he comes in and he bends over and the patriarch of the family, her voice is weak. And she extends her hands and she grabs his and she just simply says this word, welcome. Lean over to your neighbor and grab their hands and just say, welcome. It may be a relative. It may be a fellow worshiper. Just tell them, welcome. Welcome. You going to leave me hanging? <laughs> welcome. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> what would happen in our church if we move from Western-centered theology? Because Western theology... The Western mind is based on rugged individualism, manifest destiny, free enterprise, 
the right of the individual. But biblical theology is covenantal in community. And what would happen if we grabbed hold of biblical theology? That in you all the families of the earth would be blessed. That you're to take this gospel to every kind of people. When I come here, I get so excited because I know that when I come here, I said, Lord, I think this is what heaven's going to be like. And I think that all saints ought to experience a church like Faith Christian Center at some time so that heaven won't be a culture shock to you. Amen. Because I think that there are going to be some folks that are going to be shocked. Because everybody doesn't look like you. Everybody doesn't sound like you. It's going to be every nation, every kin, every tongue, every people are going to be around this throne. We're not going to even lose those identities. There'll be some upgrades, but we're going to be around this throne praising God. So I look for a far-reaching theology. I might not know you, but I can say welcome. Let me get to know you. I have some friends that minister in Athens, Ohio, friends of my friend Leon Forte. They, they, they came from West Virginia. They are Appalachians. Talk with a little twang in their voice. In their, in their church, they don't play guitars, they play guitars. You know about that? <laughs> we had bass players, they had banjo players. I went to a church so far back in the woods one time that they, they were playing scrub boards with an egg beater. But they were making melody in their hearts unto the Lord. Went to the pastor's office, he had an American flag and a Confederate flag on his desk. I said, Lord Jesus, help me. <laughs> Believing that the Confederacy is going to rise again. But God called me there. And I found some of the most loving people there. They were poor coal miners. Coal miners are now closed down. Poor. Most of them lived in trailers. But God sent me there and I found them loving and loving me. Remember we left a place in Macyville, Ohio one time. Some of the same kind of people. My wife looked at me and she said, did they give you an offering or anything? I said, look on the back seat. There was an apple pie. <laughs> And the pastor came out, he said, Pastor, he said, we pull down here. Not poor, they couldn't even afford the O and the R. <laughs> we pull down here. He said, but Sister Smith makes the best apple pie in the county. He said, this is our gift to you. I said, thank you, sir. I said, okay, God. <laughs> and God said, this is a test, son. He says, I know that you know how to love your people, but can you love my people? And I've asked the Lord over the last years, teach me how to love your people. And I found out his people, every shape, every size, every color, different languages all over the globe. And if I just learned how to say welcome, that God loves you. And because he does, he's put his love in me, so do I. Turn around and tell somebody welcome. I believe that there's a divine emphasis of God. Now listen to me. Why is this so important? 
Because in a country that seems to be more and more divided, let it never be named in the church. If there's a place that we can say, we know how to get along, let it be in this church. When I went to South Africa the first year, you would know this, John, a friend of mine, Ray McCauley from South Africa, was pastoring Rama Bible Church. And when apartheid was in, and then when it was broken, the government came to him, including Nelson Mandela. They came to him and they said, I need an audience with you, Pastor Ray McCauley. And they said, why? He said, because everybody in the nation said, the only one that knows how to get people together and keep them together is a church in Johannesburg, Ransburg, South Africa, called Rama Bible Church. Macaulay has found a way to have people on staff and they said, you can't do that. Worship together, play together, eat together. And then started Rama churches all over the place. And friends, that's just typical of what God wants us to do. We need each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us another deposit on discerning the times. I pray now in Jesus' name that you'll multiply your great grace in our lives. God, help us to discern the impact on people's lives where there's been genocide and, Father, somewhat revenge and retaliation. But, Father, teach us how to be peacemakers, agents of forgiveness and reconciliation. Teach us your major moves and your minor moves. Help us to discern your divine emphasis. Oh, God, help us to discern and help us to move towards a far-reaching gospel father that includes everybody help us to discern in these days of deception true doctrine and false doctrine sound doctrine is what we want and finally father help us to discern biblical theology and help us as a separated from western theology that is so individual so me myself and i and help us to reach and say welcome to others if you'll do this for us father we'll build your kingdom and aggressively pursue the kingdom of God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for joining us together as a church. And in this Monday night church, Father, I pray that there'll be an aroma of togetherness that will move out of this church and impact everyone that comes into church. And Father, even send in some folk that don't like those folks. And Father, so deal with their heart in the atmosphere of the Holy Ghost that you break off prejudice, you break off racism, you break off prejudging folks, you break off broad stroking groups of people, you break it off so that it's never once named in the kingdom of God. For this, we give you thanksgiving. For this, we give you praise. Thank you for it now in Jesus' name. Only you can do it, Jesus. Amen.